I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm live in NPR New York's studios and our contributors are on the line. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, our main event conversation. BET Awards Jesse Williams, a speech for these times. Hot Topic 1, a win supreme. Texas abortion law overruled. Hot Topic 2, Stanford rape case judge accused. Race and sentencing. All of that coming up. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quintero and Asha Bandele. Sofia Quintero is a screenwriter, television producer, and novelist. Sofia has published five novels. Her last was Ephraim's Secret, and her new young adult novel is the critically acclaimed Show and Prove. Asha Bandele is an award-winning journalist, an editor, and a five-time published author. Asha is Director of Communications for National Cares and Director of the Advocacy Grants Program for Drug Policy Alliance. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello, Hello everyone. here. Great to have you. So time for our main event conversation, BET Awards 2016. The annual BET Awards, BET of course being Black Entertainment Television, are a celebration of music, art and contribution by Black artists, artists of colour. Each year, millions watch for great performances, frankly, whack performances and tributes. On June 26th, elements of this award show became a reflection of what the high priestess Nina Simone called the artist's duty to reflect the times. Jesse Williams, an African-American actor, biracial, who is best known for his role in the ABC show Grey's Anatomy, created by an African-American woman, Shonda Rhimes, was given the BET Humanitarian Award. Williams was a Philadelphia public school teacher, is an activist with the Advancement Project, and went to college at Temple, where he took African-American studies. Williams is an activist who engages as well with social media on racial justice issues, inequality, police, brutality. His speech provoked national, even global headlines. William started by acknowledging his parents, who he said taught him about, quote, comprehension over career and gave him what the schools did not. And he described his amazing black wife, who he says changed his life. Williams went on and recognized this award was not about him. This is not for me. This is for the real organizers all over the country, the activists, the civil rights attorneys, the struggling parents, the families, the teachers, the students that are realizing that a system built to divide and impoverish and destroy us cannot stand if we do. He also began by acknowledging the importance of black women to the movement and how much more black women needed from the black community and men. Now, this is also in particular for the black women in particular who have spent their lifetimes dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves. We can and will do better for you. He spoke about the police and their function as public servants doing violence in broad daylight to black children, women and men and managing never to do the same to white people. What we've been doing is looking at the data and we know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm and not kill white people every day. So what's going to happen is we are going to have equal rights and justice in our own country or we will restructure their function and ours. Yesterday, 
would have been young Tamir Rice's 14th birthday. So I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television and then going home to make a sandwich. Williams lovingly critiqued capitalism and artists' pursuit of dollars as not being the answer to resolving years of inequality and injustice. Now the thing is, though, all of us in here getting money, that alone isn't going to stop this. All right? Now dedicating our lives, dedicating our lives to getting money just to give it right back for someone's brand on our body, when we spent centuries praying with brands on our bodies, and now we pray to get paid for brands on our bodies. And he talked of allyship and oppression, the invention of whiteness, and closed by reminding black people of our humanity. The burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. That's not our job. All right, stop with all that. If you have a critique for the resistance, for all resistance, then you better have an established record of critique of our oppression. If you have no interest, if you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do. Sit down. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yeah, and we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us, burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, and then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rhymes of strange fruit. The thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. So let's talk Jesse Williams and artists' duty to reflect the times and that phenomenal speech at the BET 2016 awards show, which, by the way, was screened for the first time across all the Time Warner networks, which means that it was screened on Nickelodeon. So that meant children were able to sit with their parents and listen to that speech. Sophia Quintero, let me start with you. I hope someone is creating a syllabus or at least an annotated bibliography to just do Jesse Williams' BET acceptance speech. Jesse Williams is the Paul Robeson of the generation. And for that, we need to circle him and protect him, not only for his sake, but also for all the other artists and entertainers who are watching him and watching how we're responding to him, who were moved by his speech and want to step up but are afraid to. They need to see that we're going to take care of Jesse, that we're going to support him, that we're going to protect him, and that we'll do the same for them. Um, Some other things that I want to underscore um, is, yes, that this was simulcasted across 12 Viacom networks, and that means 7.2 million people witnessed the speech. And so his decision to say these words, people have been calling them radical and revolutionary, and and, and it's, it's even much more than we think. And in addition to some of the things that you already mentioned, um, Esther, I also want to appreciate that his speech recognized that activism looks many ways. You can be an activist parent just by teaching your children what the schools fail to. I, I think his speech uh, was a reminder that social justice work is a daily practice no matter what it is, whether you don't have to have the title of organizer or advocate or activist to be living a life uh, of affecting social justice. Um, 
he spoke to so many audiences in that short speech. He was giving a lot of love, and he was also calling out, and sometimes calling out is giving love. And I particularly um, loved his comments about branding and bodies in front of that particular live audience. I felt that that was just as courageous as anything he said in calling out white supremacy, because we know there were moguls and millionaires in that audience who got to their feet and who were clapping, but really weren't there for that particular message. And, you know, we can really focus on, like, angry white liberal folks who were who are coming after him for speech and violent trumpets. But, you know, there are also folks in our community that don't desire to be free as much as they want um, the, one of the few roles that the interlocking systems of oppression hand out to perpetuate this ruse that we're living in a meritocracy. So, yeah, I, I think his speech was poetry for the people, and every paragraph has a bibliography and a playlist that I hope that someone's compiling. <laughs> Asha Bendele. That's just brilliant. I'd love to see a syllabus for all of this stuff, and I love the fact that it, you know, gives parents um, and, and, uh, and other people involved with children and young people an entree into conversations that they may not be getting inside their school walls. But, and as I agree with everything that was said about Jesse Williams and played that speech a number of times and circulated it to colleagues that I have, um, in particular white colleagues that I work with who never seem to understand who we are in this work that we do around ending the prison industrial complex and we see things differently and, and what have you. I said, this is, this is what we're talking about. This is, this is what we've been saying for all these years. But I can't um, uh, go without mentioning um, maybe I'll, I'll start it like this. You know, the first uh, president of the Republic of Guinea, uh, so the great Sekou Touré, said, make the revolution and the music will come, right? And so when I see Jesse Williams, as grateful as I am for him, I am equally grateful for the young people who put their bodies on the line in Florida and who were part of the Dream Defenders, who put their bodies on the line in Ferguson all of the, and in Baltimore and in New York all of the people who make up the movement for black lives that has forced this moment to come. Because, you know, he has, he not only says it, right, he says it, uh, you know, with all of his advertising around it, right? So State Farm presents this, right? So you're demanding this of advertisers, too. So wherever you go, we've got to be there. And that work, you know, happens because of the courage of primarily um, black women, primarily a queer-led organization, a non-patriarchal organization that has demanded that we do business differently, that business would not be done as usual as long as black bodies were being like fodder for, for the oven. And so as grateful as I am for Jesse Williams, I know that he exists within a context that was made possible for him by people whose names we will never know, and I want to herald them in this discussion as well. That is um, so important, and um, he acknowledged that because he opened by saying that this is really about and for um, the, the, uh, the the activists, parents, all the different um, um, bodies and beings whose actions um, make this moment what it is in really, really particular ways. Um, what What I thought was powerful was that what Jesse Williams' speech did was, first of all, it was artistry. At an awards ceremony that was about celebrating music and art, it was artistry. It was poetic, even in the even in the oratory of it. And I appreciated that specifically. But also the the notion of combining branding and bodies, 
in front of an audience who, for whom so many have that, um, the, 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 and BT even itself embodies the issue of chasing paper um, and valuing entertainment over um, black bodies in particular ways. And, you know, BET has a checkered and troubled history when it comes to the ways in which um, black people have been portrayed um, artistically, musically. And so for that network at that moment, it spoke to something specific um, as well. But we, I know history teaches us that the revolution has never moved. The political times have never moved. The president has never moved without the revolutionaries and the radicals and the activists and the organizers. History is the lesson that teaches us that. And so um, this moment in which an artist speaks truth to an audience in a way that they can receive it is a uh, particular speciality, but in recognizing that his individual truth speaks to a collective institutional set of actions that even enable him to be on the stage, that even enable uh, uh, Beyonce to do the performance and and do the freedom track with that quote from Martin Luther King that she did featuring Kendrick Lamar. And so I wonder for you both, um, Sophia, you said that Jesse Williams is the Paul Robeson of our times. And Lord knows we are a culture for whom the cult of celebrity is a particular thing. It is most certainly cancerous. We've seen that. And then there are these moments when it is particularly powerful. Talk a bit about what that means in this moment where we're we're watching artists kind of take on the times in a way that reflects a historical um, um, narrative and speaks to just the reality that we face with social justice um, and our elevated relationship with violence as a result of the power of social media to allow us to be in much more intimate spaces with how that violence occurs. I liken him to Paul Robeson because he's using the visibility that he has as an entertainer in a very hyper-consumptive context to bring attention to a broader audience to these issues and to bring more nuances to these issues, because what I particularly appreciate about his speech is that how informed it is and um, and that there's nuance there, but there's also just a real powerful truth. That he's not speaking in platitudes, and that's what I really appreciate about that, and that there is some risk to him in doing this. I, um, I don't believe that the kind of activism that he has engaged in, whether on social media or in supporting and bringing visibility to uh, different movements with whatever platform he has, I don't believe that this has not been to at no cost to him. Um, and I do believe that when anybody is that visible, they are also at risk. And that's kind of why I like it to Paul Robeson. It's like he doesn't care. His, his people matter to him more than his wealth and his career. Um, and so it, that's why I felt it was just really why I appreciate it so much. And I think even overall, like with BET, this is the BET we have been wanting and needing. And I don't know if this is going to be lasting at all. But as you mentioned, Beyonce opening up with Freedom, there's so many other songs from the Lemony album that she could have performed. And she chose to perform Freedom with Kendrick Lamar. That is within their context a radical decision um, to open with that song. She took so much black for invoking radical blackness at the Super Bowl. She could have fallen back, and she didn't. She knew she was at home with family. 
Um, and even with the even with the Prince tribute, um, I I felt that having people perform throughout the entire show um, that might seem like a small little change, but I don't think it is. When you when you honor an artist that way, you highlight how his musical influence is sharply connected to contemporary artists. And so I think for and his and his um, the tribute was. It was multiracial, but it was unapologetically black. It was intergenerational, but it focused on his protégés and collaborators, and it did him justice. And so, um, you know, when I think of Zoe Saldana believing that she made a radical decision because she chose to play Nina Simone and has been refusing to listen to the critiques of that decision because she feels like, well, I caused controversy, and controversy brought attention, and that in and of itself is good. Um, this, that's a whole different thing than what we saw on BET the other night. I appreciate that so much, and I understand the context, too, in which we're um, raising the name of Paul Robeson. I do think, um, while I understand that context, I do want to pull apart a little bit what's happening here. While I don't disagree that we need to circle the wagons around those who stand up for us in the name of justice and what is right, you know, Paul, Paul Robeson um, did his work at a time of not just Jim Crow, but at a time of the House on Un-American Activities. He was an attorney. He was a theologian, uh, a, a thespian, and a singer. Um, he was denied the right to work, and so that's something that we'll certainly have to look at with Jesse Williams in one of the single most painful conversations I've ever had of the many conversations I've had with Harry Belafonte. The one that broke me down was the one in which he talked about Paul Robeson in the last years of his life and living in poverty and living alone and sitting by his friend and trying to hold his friend up to the dignity that he deserved when really the entire world had deserved him. Paul Robeson did his work without a movement behind him to support him in that, in the way that uh, Jesse Williams and a Beyonce have, right? So I just want to make that distinction um, in terms of what that mountain of a man did and, and the particular courage that it took to do that with um, absolutely nothing. Jesse Williams is not on the same side of that rough mountain. Now, that said, I do agree that we need to stand up for and protect and you know those who stand up and protect us, including Ashonda Rhimes, who continues to create spaces for people like Jesse Williams to be seen, you know, for whether it's Jesse Williams or a space for a Viola Davis who does her own incredible work when she stands up for us both in her show and in awards programs, right? Whoever thought we'd hear somebody quote Harriet Tubman at an award show, but that truly happened. And these, you know, so Shonda Rhimes, I want to circle around too um, because of the incredible spaces that she creates for, for uh, those of us who are in entertainment. And Ava DuVernay and Ryan Coogler. Yeah, and that's really powerful because Jesse Williams, you know, we're talking about the reality of art within mainstream spaces and the reality of, of art turning in front of an audience where they're balancing, you know, chasing paper equals chasing dreams and chasing paper equals particularly the American dream personified. And so I come back again to the power of Jesse Williams really lovingly critiquing the notion of chasing the idea of a brand on our bodies for a people who spent years dealing with brands on our bodies. Um, but that that conversation about risk I think is really important and I think the context of risk matters and so I really take your point Asha about 
um, Paul Robeson doing his work without a movement that had stood up and surrounded him. Um, and I also think about the importance of learning the lessons from the legacy of our histories that when in movement spaces that did so much phenomenal work whilst in some ways um, breaking the very people who stood up and as a result of their standing up brought millions of people a a step closer towards um, justice. And, you know, I I truly believe some wounds we bury, but some wounds bury us. And the reality of what we're witnessing within the Black Lives Matter movement, the, the way that it's crafted is symptomatic of learning the lessons of movement history and how that works. And so part of the work is then not doing the um, elevating the straight black man leader, quote unquote, but instead putting him within the context of a movement and the context of a history so that it, it stays within context, within a space that matters. Celebrating, elevating, contextualizing, all within the same um, parameter so that that definitely works. One of the things that Jesse Williams did that was so powerful was he reminded us of how freedom in the United States was unacceptably conditional. There has been no war that we have not fought and died in the front lines of. There has been no job we haven't done. There's no tax they haven't levied against us, and we've paid all of them. But freedom is somehow always conditional here. You're free, they keep telling us. But she, she, she would have been alive if she hadn't acted so free. Now, freedom is always coming in the hereafter. But... You know what, though? The hereafter is a hustle. We want it now. And Freedom was the soundtrack that opens the BET Awards with a stunning live performance by Beyonce with Kendrick Lamar. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note This note was a promise at all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. So we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of Tell 
was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Sofia Quindero and Usher Bendele. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in NPR's New York studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. for the first of our hot topics. The Supreme Court just struck down a strict Texas abortion law saying it violated women's constitutional rights. The win was described as the most significant legal victory for reproductive justice since the right to abortion was established back in 1973. Now, this legal win by reproductive rights activists and organizers was celebrated across the country. Here's Planned Parenthood's Dawn Leguns in celebration with the women outside the Supreme Court and explaining that this ruling is a step in the right direction. Today, this victory gives us the opportunity to march state by state, legislature by legislature, rule by rule, bill by bill, and reclaim women's health and rights across this country 100%. No burdens on any woman anywhere. And that's what we're going to do. The Texas law was described as one of the harshest in the entire country. One of its requirements was abortion clinics across the state had to have expensive hospital-grade facilities. Pro-life advocates argued that that was necessary for women's safety. And they believe the Supreme Court ruling was a loss for women. Here's pro-life advocate Kristen Hawkins. The 5-3 Supreme Court ruling argued that Texas had failed to demonstrate a medical justification for the bill's restrictions. The ruling paves the way to overturn dozens of measures in other states restricting women's access to abortion. And it immediately stopped Texas enforcing the law that would have closed almost all the abortion clinics across the state. Literally only nine would have been left open. Now, the case started back in 2013 when Texas Republicans passed one of the most expansive set of abortion restrictions in the United States. And that came after an 11-hour filibuster by Republican Wendy Davis. The bill was called House Bill 2, known as HB2. So which women really paid the price for this bill and what it would mean? Lawmakers said that HB2 was about women's safety. Reproductive justice advocates argued it was shutting down women's access and restricting their rights. 
Now, the bill took effect in November 2013, and the number of abortion clinics were cut in half from 44 to 21 clinics. The June 27th ruling could strike down clinics threatened with closure in Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Wisconsin. A win supreme, according to reproductive justice advocates, or a loss for women, according to pro-life supporters. Let's talk the Supreme Court ruling. Asha Medele, let me start with you. Well, I think that this was certainly uh, a step in the right direction, you know, you know, but it's, you, know, you almost feel like, you know, what was the statement that Malcolm X made? You stab somebody in the back and you pull it out six inches, you know, you still got a knife in your back. And so it was certainly um, uh, a better ruling than it could have been because it essentially said that a right without access to that right is not a right at all. And that's important, but the, uh, at the same time, the extraordinary defunding of Planned Parenthood that hasn't been addressed, the extraordinary inaccessibility to um, uh, clinics across the country, and in, in particular in the Deep South and in some other red states through middle America, is, is, is very disturbing. And, you know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about something that happened in you know, the conversation I was having with some members of Sister Song some years ago uh, during a campaign called Trust Black Women when they were trying to get abortion shut down throughout the South and they were using black women's images and voices um, in order to do that. And, you know, I I really do believe that it's got to be about that time that we come out about what is essentially uh, somebody's right who said this to me, a private medical matter, and say and remove any euphemism. This isn't really just about reproductive rights, which I believe in. This is about the right to terminate a pregnancy. It's about a right to choose when and if you want to be a mother. It's about the right to have an abortion. And those of us who have had abortions, including myself, need to stand up and say that, thank God, we were able to. There are, I would have had a lot more than one child had I not had the right to an abortion and, and there's no way I could have parented more than I'm doing now. I get a lot of praise for the kind of parent that I am. But I don't know what kind of parent I would be if I had had all five children that, that I could have otherwise had. And I think that we have to start talking about that. There's so much shame and so much stigma and so much um, respectability politics and morality around women's sexuality and pregnancy and motherhood and the virgin mother sort of, you know, image, all that stuff that keeps us from saying anything, anything from, you know, the most extreme horrific circumstances, uh, as in the case of, of rape, uh, but, or, you know, I was with a guy and I just didn't want to, I didn't want to have his baby, which is more my story. He was, you know, he wasn't, wasn't somebody I thought I could parent with for the rest of my life, or I wasn't mature enough, which is also my story, and that also happened to me, all of these reasons. And so I think that women, we also have a responsibility to really say what abortion rights means for us and how much we actually need it, and we've been shamed and stigmatized into not saying that. And so I just want to say in no uncertain terms that I love being a mother. There is nothing I enjoy more than being a mother. But there is almost no right about my body that I will fight for more than the right for me to have an abortion. I was glad that I had it when I needed it. And if my daughter ever needs it, I hope that she has that right, too. Sophia Quintero. With these rulings, we don't get many victories. But even when we do get the victories, I always find them a little bittersweet. 
Um, in this particular case, it's because half the existing clinics did shut down. Um, we had 23 clinics in Texas closing in less than three years. Um, and it's not going to be easy. They, they can't just open up again. Um, so it's, it's a bittersweet victory. And I think that this is always, has always been the downside of framing abortion rights as individual liberties and winning them on the grounds of privacy rather than, um, as, rather than using a public health or, or human rights framework. And that's the irony, because now you have the abortion foes now attempting to use health arguments to curb access. So while this, as Asha said, is a, is a step in the right direction, I feel that the way we achieved abortion rights in this country wasn't from an intersectional place with this notion of privacy, and that we're always running to stand in place to protect them um, be, because of that. Uh, and therefore, there's no, it's, 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 you know, it's no surprise that when these things do happen, we see class and racial ramifications. We see that poor women and women of color at, are at the greater risk of harm, um, and we're going to continue to see that. And so that's what just makes, you know, this news, it, 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 you know, I know it's, it's a good thing, but it always just reminds me of how the lack of intersectionality in our framework in achieving this right, we are still um, running to stand in place. I'm so moved listening to you both. Um, Asha, the power of talking about stigmatizing the the, the reality of making the the choice and being able to make the choice. You know, in a society that um, has always used the, the twin S's of stigma and shame to control how women live, what they do, and how they move through the world. And so it has always been the, the most supreme hypocrisy to me that um, we have American Republicans fighting so hard to protect life and so unwilling to pass policy when the life actually arrives on this planet to ensure that they get what they need to live and be healthy um, and move through the world, when particularly talking about um, issues around poverty and women of, of color. So that has always struck me about a particular um, hypocrisy. But also the power of um, stigma and shame to influence how this battle is fought and that the challenge of the difficult conversation, the willingness to speak to your experience, understanding that the way this issue is framed is um, it's almost a it's a defensive judgment. It's a defensive um, stance on your right to choose as opposed to being able to have uh, and articulate an honest situation for yourself. And so, you know, there's an example, there's a way in which the church frames it specifically around morality. It's definitely politically framed around the notions of morality on the one hand, but then you have a history of um, black women being sterilized on on mass and the shaming that comes with being um, a black mother and the, using the issues of the welfare queen and too many kids to stigmatize and politically win votes. There is a particular way that these these politics have been framed around threat and stigma and shame and fear. 
Um, and so within that space, looking at ways to more effectively fight become particularly challenging. So, so that's in terms of, on the one piece. And the second one is your point, Sofia Quintero, around how you then, the, the, over, the, the, the return to what has been lost. So absolutely, the, the, the article in the, there was an article in The Guardian that spoke about, you don't just, the doors didn't just lock and everything stayed fine. And then now you just go, go get the key, put the key in the lock, open up. And the next day we're all open and we're back in business. That's not the reality of what happened. Um, and so what has been the cost since November 2013 when the law was put into effect? And who pays that price? And what has happened as a result in those almost three years that it took for the Supreme Court to make this ruling? But then, of course, it doesn't pave the way for every clinic to be reopened. It just makes it easier to fight for them to be reopened. So the fight isn't over. And this kind of Groundhog Day for women of fighting for the right to make choices that affect and impact their lives within a state that does not support them if they choose to do the thing that the pro-lifers, and I hate that word, I hate that term, consistently argue for. Always strikes me is that the one thing about this notion of, of abortion and reproductive justice is the intersectionality for me is always around hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, stigma, shame, and the emotional violence used against women even as they pursue the right to live the life that they um that they that they choose and i wonder if there's a way in which we can think about dealing with the activism around that because part of the work is that even the framing of the of the activism becomes um challenging because we've watched a consistent war against women's bodies like women's bodies are groundhog day for Republican policies and, and politics in in a, in the same way that Islamophobia becomes the foundation upon which you can get score cheap votes and guarantee the kind of polarizing um, um, discussion that makes the issue almost swallows or drowns the issue. How do we reimagine the framework of the activism here in order to change this conversation? And I'm wondering what you both think about that. Asha, starting with you. You know, it's hard to, you know, yeah, it's, you know, we think about retrain, reframing the conversation. You know what I was thinking about where my mind was drifting, Esther, was I was thinking about I wish we had such impassioned discussion about the fact that 40% of all black children in this wealthy nation wake up in poverty every single day, that black children are the only group of people in this country for whom poverty has not dropped in the last five years. We never have the discussions about the quality of life of the children who are here. And until we have that discussion, it's almost like to circle back to what we were saying about, you know, Jesse Williams. You know, it's like you don't have a critique for my movement unless, you know, you've sort of been a part of it. I don't want to hear from you. Go sit down. Until you can tell me how you specifically are going to care about the children who are here. We can't even begin a conversation about the children who are not here. And that's not even to get into the reality. I mean, you know, if you have, and I don't want to get too technical about it, but if you have a very, very, very early term abortion, for example, what you're talking about is not a person. And so this sort of horror that they've put around the language, oh, you're killing a person and this sort of thing, is, is in most cases not true. I've seen it. I've seen the result of one of my terminations at two and a half weeks. It's, it's a collection of cells. There's not yet 
transformed. And to put it into these terms that shame and terrify women is horrible. And not to mention the cases of women who do have to have late-term abortions because there's, probably, there's no chance, as in one story that I just read that was horrifying, where her, there was no way her child would survive. No simple way. And it was a horrible decision for her to have to make, but when you ban late-term abortions, she would have been counted out. And it was a very, very, very painful story. There's a million and one stories about why women choose not to ha carry a pregnancy to term. And they have, for a million and one reasons, but the point of the matter is that this is about a woman's sovereignty over her own body. And that's what black women have never had. It's not just about the sovereignty to be a mother. That hasn't been there, but it's about the sovereignty to not be a mother. It's about the sovereignty to walk down the street. It's about the sovereignty to argue with a police officer who illegally pulls you over and you wind up dead in a jail cell two and a half days later. It's about not having sovereignty. And we have a right to own our bodies. That's the first rule that we must organize around, the right to self-determination and sovereignty over our own bodies. And I'm not having a conversation with somebody who can't align with me on that first point. Everything else after that we can maybe discuss, but if you can't agree with me on that, then we have nothing to discuss. Sophia Kinderu. I believe that some of that conversation uh, that Asha is raising um, I, is a difficult conversation that has to happen within the reproductive justice movement itself um, because it's very easy to just stand in front of the news media and talk about, well, poor women and women of color are at greater risk, they're at greater harm. But I don't know if we're having these really hard conversations among black women and women of color and poor women and uh, undocumented women within the reproductive justice movement, having a hard conversation with white feminists about going past the platitudes um, because these, for some women, these are not real choices. So you might have the right to an abortion, but there's no real choice there. Um, I, I feel like we, we talk about it, but we talk around it and we don't really get deep. And I think that the women who are most adversely affected by this issue have to have much more challenging conversations, telling the story, um, bringing all the details to some of the white women <laughs> that um, are being spokespeople on their behalf. And we have plenty of women of color and poor women and who are in the reproductive justice work. They're, they're, they're on the front lines. They're dealing with this. But I don't know how deep and how difficult the conversations around privilege and access are going within the movement. Because I think if that was happening, there would be um, more movement around being proactive in terms of strategy, in terms of how we are framing these issues, again, instead of, instead of just relying on just protecting what we already have. Um, and I don't mean to say that that's easy because I know protecting what we already have is really important. It's very hard when you're constantly under attack to try to expand the vision and you're trying so hard to protect the one thing that you have. But I do think there has to be more honest 
um, strategic conversations that are really rooted in the lived experiences of diverse women um, so that we're not always in this reactive state. Um, and I think it's very easy for the white feminists in this movement to stay in this reactive state rather than taking a step back and listening to women of color and listening to undocumented women and listening to poor women and saying about, you know, maybe we need to spend more time and make the investment of reframing this entire conversation because the frame that we have right now isn't really moving us forward. It's like swimming in quicksand. So what is interesting for me is listening to you both is I think about both of those arguments remind me of this frame of um, a racialized emotional terrorism so that the issue is not felt equally and it is not experienced equally. And the linear way in which the frame is created um, is the result of how privilege works on the one hand, but it's also the reality of what you talked about, um, Asha, uh, that the reality for black women is sovereignty over your body, period, has been an alien space for the history of women of color's existence for black women in the United States of America, that even the idea of sovereignty over your body in and of itself is some radical revolutionary language. So you have that piece there. Um, you have the, the piece where um, women's bodies are this particular, um, are a particular battlefield and an, a successful, impactful battlefield for the Republican Party. And so the way in which that battleground is accessed is around the linear space of policy and legality. Um, and then you have the intersectional piece that you speak about, Sophia, the reality of what, how the issue of abortion is even experienced. So you may have the right, but can you even get the access? And then what does that mean within the world in which you live and how stigma and shame and those pieces function? So it reminds me of one of the challenges I have within, I think, within contemporary movements. And Stacey Ann Chin talks about this in context, in context of the LGBT movement, and that is the notion of single issue battlegrounds. There's a way in which the, the, the justice for that issue gets framed as a particular issue. And that the pursuit of that single issue silences all the important contexts that equally matter. Uh, and so with the LGBT movement, it was about marriage equality. And so the other dimensions of the LGBT community became silenced and drowned. And I think with the abortion um, issue, talking about the same thing, that there's been a linear way of exploring and fighting this, because even your empathy has to have a context. And if you are if you are unable to recognize the frame of a racialized emotionality, the way you experience and feel this is different because of the history of your presence in this country and the reality of, of the way race um, functions, then how do you reframe the, um, that particular justice movement? What kind of reframe can you build? And it's a particular battle, I think, within movements around the notion of allyship. What is uh, a sustainable solidarity what is a an impactful allyship in this moment where the failure to understand the intersections of how something functions mean that your 
Battle isn't just linear. It is in some ways unlikely to help those who most need the work and and for whom you claim you're standing beside and, and fighting. It's, it's a powerful thing for us to kind of think about and uh, explore. You know, and Esther, as you say that, I just I feel like, you know, there's, there's been so many uh, attacks on, on this sister, you know, for some really, some things that I quite disagree with that she said recently. But I think it's important to insert here the name of Bell Hooks, who from the very beginning said that none of our work in doing this could be, um, you know, sort of single-issued, like we could not be single-storied as people, right? That if she was going to be a feminist, it meant fighting not just patriarchy, but, but white supremacy and classism. And, you know, in her earlier, I mean, now, you know, certainly she would talk more and use language that we know today that we didn't know when she first wrote from margin to center, but she would talk about homophobia more and transphobia more, you know, so she's always been into intersectional, because there is no community on this planet that you can live in that's not intersectional, right? And so to say that someone is intersectional is to speak in a redundant form, right? Because we're all people who live at the intersections of many things in our lives, woman, black, gay, transgender, I mean, whatever the poor, you know, whatever the case may be, we carry these many stories within us as we stand all of our communities are intersectional and to ever and part of the uh, contradictions you know and I work in the nonprofit industrial complex but part of the contradiction of the work of freedom freedom writers and activists and everything that was done until roughly around the co-optation of that work in the 70s when you had nonprofits say you know what I just I'm deciding I'm going to fund just this this is what I think is important, and this is what I'll pay for. And so you have these very, very, very wealthy people not paying taxes and instead putting money, far less money, at taking it out of the public good and the public service to make schools better and to, to do other things that one might do in, you know, in, in the public good, right, and putting it into funds that they don't have to pay taxes on now, right, to protect their dollars and then determining what it is we can actually get out here and fight for because now they're paying your salary. And so there's a very vicious cycle that I see happening just in terms of activism. It's almost like activism isn't free anymore. In 1848, they had a meeting in Seneca Falls, New York. They wanted rights, they wanted temperance and equality for the sexes. Here we go. In 1920, they got the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. They got sway on all kinds of issues like alcohol and smoke. Women, they've done a lot. They're not as dumb as we originally thought. Women, they're real cool. They're in our workforce and even in our schools, yeah. Time for Hot Topic 2. The judge who gave a white student athlete just six months in county jail for the sexual assault of an unconscious woman is being accused of racial bias. The judge is Aaron Persky, and the case was that of star student athlete Brock Turner and his sexual assault of an unconscious woman. In a similar case, Judge Persky gave a Latino man accused and convicted of sexual assault three years in state prison. 
Raul Ramirez is an immigrant from El Salvador who pled guilty to sexually assaulting his roommate. The similarity between the two cases and the disparity in the sentencing provoked headlines around race and sentencing and a campaign to recall Persky. In the Stanford rape case, the sexual assault was interrupted by two cyclists. The case drew national headlines at the time and again when the victim's powerful letter to her rapist was read in court after the judge's sentence was delivered. So Turner was convicted of three felony counts of sexual assault. It turns out, though, Judge Aaron Persky was also a former Stanford athlete. Turner was a star swimmer. And during his sentence delivery, Persky spoke specifically of the impact of the trial and conviction on not the victim, but Turner. The cyclist's witness testimony also offered a rare reality in sexual assault cases, independent third-party corroboration. So, elite white star athlete gets six months in county jail for three felony counts of sexual assault. Latino man pleads guilty to sexual assault and gets three years in state prison. So is this about the individual treatment of defendants by judges? Or is this about dealing with the cancer of rape, a racist criminal justice system, a toxic masculinity in the ways gender and race play out for individuals within this institutional space? Let's talk race, sentencing and rape in the criminal justice system. Sofia Quintero, let me start with you. It boggles my mind that some public defenders would feel that it's better to keep Persky on the bench, that that's in their interest. And using the argument that not giving judges discretion would lead to mass incarceration. Like, bro, we already have mass incarceration. And Black Turner didn't have a public defender. So using his case as some kind of litmus test doesn't make sense to me. There's already a one-size-fits-all sentencing scheme for defendants based on race and class. How many studies do we need to have as evidence that black and brown defendants get harsher sentences for the same crime as white defendants across um, offenses? So I don't, I don't get this argument at all. It flies in the face of what, what has been established, the, the racial and class bias in, in sentencing. Um, and when it comes to the Black Turner case, this isn't only about the privilege of the defendant. It's also about the willingness to sympathize with the survivor because this case got consistent media coverage. Um, you had many highly visible white feminists making strided public statements about this case. And then compare that to where you have a police officer, Daniel Hallsclaw, assaulting 13-plus women of color, and it managed to stay, and this trial manages to stay well under the radar. And then you have the survivor in the Turner case making a very compelling and courageous statement. But I really do believe that even if she had not said anything, that there still would have been sympathy. It, it brings me back. I think about this case, and I think about the Central Park Five case, where for years we didn't know who the victim was um, for years. But we knew she was white and that she worked in finance, and that was all we needed to know. And I just want to say that all survivors of sexual assault deserve justice, but there are certain survivors who are not going to see it because of their class, because of their race, because of their, their you know, national origin and status, and because of their gender identity. It's all, it's all interconnected. Closing thought to you, Usher Benzele. For anybody who is going to be listening to this with us, you know, um, you know, I'm sorry for the trigger because the number of 
women who called me of many races who were triggered by what this judge did, um, just as it happened after the Daniel Holtzclaw case. You know, it's just a horrible thing to hear and to talk about, and I don't want to pretend that it's um, not not triggering. But to Sophia's point, too, about, you know, these public defenders, I remember having a frightening conversation with a colleague of mine who served as a public defender and told me in no uncertain terms that defend, that def, that people would come in, right, and if uh, they were black, they would negotiate some kind of deal that involved some sort of, you know, the least amount of jail time they could get the person, usually for some very minor um, offense, something probably involving some low-level possession of drugs. And um, and when a white kid would come in for the very same crime, the the public defenders would double down and say, we, he won't be able to survive jail. And so, you know, in many places that I've traveled to, whether uh, it's not just in New York, but throughout the South, public defenders are all too often seen as very part and parcel of those who are driving mass incarceration because they are not fighting. I'm not saying that this is true, and I have loved many a public defender in my life, but I think that we have to look at the role that, that public defenders do play in negotiating some of these deals and who they fight for and who they don't. As Sophia was uh, saying, just even about how you know the women that we stand up for and the women we didn't stand up for, even in the Holtzclaw case, we only you know decide that we're going to, you know, that gets some attention because the woman, or the black woman who was assaulted by him said, you know, not me, I'm a good Christian, you know, grandmother and woman, and not that she should be assaulted, but all the other women who were drug using, who were uh, sex workers, who were all those, they didn't matter. Their voices would never have been heard. And so, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to this and a lot we have to look at within our own even allyship, as you referred to earlier, Esther, about how are we really showing up as allies, are we fully, fully being allies, and are we really living out the idea that every life has value. That's your hour. Thank you, Asha Bandele and Sophia Kendera. Powerful conversations. Thank you, Asha. Thank you, Sophia. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. I appreciate you two so much. Bye now. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Put the spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.